Hello and welcome to another episode of the CBO Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Donna Sheely. So glad you all could join us again. Today, we are talking with Jeffrey Chattis. Jeff is the Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer at the University of Michigan. Hello, Jeff. So glad you could join us today. Good morning. Glad to be here. Jeff, you know, it is always fascinating to speak with CBOs from large institutions, and you have served at many with billion-dollar budgets and huge staffs, one of which was actually your alma mater at Georgetown University. And now here you are back in your hometown in Ann Arbor. So let's go all the way back to your years as a student at Georgetown and talk to us about your journey that led you to becoming a CBO. I will, but I have to preface it by telling you in um, December, I was sitting at the Big Ten Championships uh, in in Indianapolis uh, when Michigan won. (laughs) And I was reflecting, I bet I'm the only CBO who was there with Ohio State. (laughs) <laughs> as the, right. as the CBO and then Michigan a decade later. So, wow. Uh, an wow. interesting journey. But yeah, I'd be happy to. So, I grew up in Ann Arbor, like you said. And uh, my parents had, had one, they were both Michigan grads, um, and they had one steadfast rule, which was we had to leave Michigan to go to college, which is a shame in some ways, but a great experience in others. And so I ended up at Georgetown. Uh, and that, that is where my my journey began. And I uh, studied economics and history as undergrad and had a chance to work at the Senate and all the great things you can do when you're at Georgetown. But one of the things I did is I studied abroad in London at the London School of Economics my junior year. And I was able to study economic history. So rather than economics and history combined, and I had one of those profound academic experiences where I was able to work with a mentor, uh, a professor named Peter Earl, who was doing research on economic history. And it sparked my passion for higher ed at, at this early age. And I actually then went on to study at Oxford, where I did a master's degree in MPhil in economic history. And at, for a time, I thought, well, maybe I'm going to stick with the, the traditional academic route. But I took a summer job at a bank in Brussels. And I fell in love with the world of, of finance and global finance in action rather than just in history, which is what I was studying. And, and that started my journey. And if you think about it, that's the kind of marrying this academic passion with an early mentor at, George, at, at London School of Economics when I was away for a year. And then having just some amazing early experiences in the finance world and so my first job was actually uh, out of grad school, was at Citibank in Zurich, Switzerland. And at a tender young age, I was sent out to countries across Eastern Europe to do studies of where the bank should expand. And so taking those academic skills and applying them in a financial world. And if you fast forward in the story, I I then went from banking to working with energy companies to working uh, in infrastructure and helping set up one of the first uh, infrastructure funds in the U.S. at J.P. Morgan, and the common thread, and this is the kind of the amusing part. While I was while I was the treasurer of an energy company living in Columbus, Ohio, I saw an ad for a local university, not Ohio State, that wanted someone to teach corporate finance to to mature MBA students on Monday night, and so Monday night from six to ten, I would go teach these these young professionals uh, in an MBA program. 
And it kept alive my passion for higher ed. And so while I progressed in the corporate world, I was a CFO in a public company. I started the fund. I started teaching at Chapel Hill at the University of North Carolina when we lived in Raleigh for a while. And then um, when we came back to Columbus, I taught uh, at the Ohio State University. And in 2010, I had been teaching at Ohio State at this point for a number of years. And the then president, who I knew socially, uh, and I were talking, and I said something to the effect of, you know, President Gee, I've been looking at the financials of these higher ed institutions, and I think they're kind of messed up. Mm. <laughs> and he said, okay, great, join me. Come be the CFO, and let's make a difference. And that was 2010. And that so I went from a long and successful and satisfactory career in the private sector to higher ed in 2010. And I've been here ever since. And you're right. I started at, and I started at Ohio State. I then was honored to be invited by the president of my alma mater, Georgetown, to be the, the COO there. And, um, I really enjoyed that experience being back in Washington. And then just over two, well, a year and a half ago, the University of Michigan called and I always said, well, gosh, if Michigan ever called, I have to pick up the phone and, and hear it. For sure. For sure. Oh, wow. What a wonderful, what an amazing story. Okay. So how long, once you've trans- transitioned into the role of CBO, um, I'm assuming the first was at the Ohio State University. How long were you there? And then how long were you at Georgetown? So I was at, at Ohio State. We can drop the the for a while. <laughs> I was at Ohio State for eight years. Uh, and I then went to Georgetown in 2018, and I was there for almost four years. And now I've been at Michigan for just about a year and a half. All of those are huge institutions. So what types of challenges did you encounter, and um, how did you handle it? It's a great question, and I think I was... Um, on a very steep learning curve. And I know all a lot of your listeners will know the same thing, whether they started in higher ed uh, as a young person or came in midstream. And one of the first challenges is I remember the president said, you know, Jeff, the transplant failure rate is high, bringing people in from the corporate world to the higher ed world. And so that to me was the first challenge. How do you become part of a culture and how do you work in a way that people are viewing you as a partner or as a value add or as a uh, a problem solver rather than someone to be feared. And so that was the first, I think, big challenge. And I remember at Ohio State, I had this legal pad and I just watched and I listened, which is hard for me, but I thought it was really important. And it was to listen for the first three months. And I created this pad called the Y pad. And I think your listeners will probably, many of them will nod a bit in agreement. They'll say, well, I would write down, well, why do we do this? Or why do we do that? Or why do we? And I remember one of the challenges is we were trying to identify, well, what what are things that the university, you're right, we're huge, right? These big, complex universities. And I'll give you a quick example of something to overcome. We started this list of the things we owned, and then we're saying, well, why do we own them? And should we own them? And so the first challenge was to come up with a process to look at what we do and who we are. And I always think in higher ed, we're here to to help facilitate teaching and research and learning, right? And 
healthcare if you're fortunate to have a big medical center. And so a lot of the things we do in the business side of things is to support mission. And so at Ohio State, just to give you an example, we owned an airport. Mm-hmm. Uh, we owned golf courses. We You can just go down this list and say, well, why? And take the airport. Well, it turns out the why is that Ohio State built an airport to train pilots in World War One. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. And now they train control tower employees. So we need to have an airport. Right. So we said, OK, that makes sense. But do we need to run the airport? So those, that, those were the kind of obstacles that, that we started by saying, let's apply what we learn in the private sector. Remember, we're part of an enterprise that is not here to make money. It is here to teach and learn, but we can't lose money either. So I thought that was really instructive for me as I began to say the first critical component was to figure out how to partner, partner with professors, partner with deans, and and learn how to come up with creative solutions where you bring people together. Uh, And that is a huge challenge, I think, as you're learning how do you overcome as a CBO the the challenge of not being perceived as someone who's coming in to slash and burn or you know, get rid of things. What would you say, and I'm hearing partnering as one of them, were your biggest transferable skills from the uh, nonprofit from when into the CBO um, field? What were some of the skills you're like, you know what, I'm glad I had that as I go into this? So, so the first would be wherever you are is, is, is learning from people who've been on their journey. And I remember one of my mentors at Citibank, who was very senior person at the bank said, try in your life to never take a job that existed before you took it. And if that's not possible, try to reinvent it when you take the job. And. So that notion of thinking about the world in different ways and asking why and coming up with creative solutions has been a big time guidepost for me uh, in in my my journey. And the second thing is that I just believe this firmly, and we can come back to this later, but I think it's really important to develop great teams of people as a leader and to invest in those teams and then to get out of their way and, uh, and support them. And so bringing that into higher ed is something I was able to very clearly develop and fine tune in the private sector, you know, starting a major fund, being a CFO of a Fortune 100 or company or 1000 company. Um, those skills were transferable, but they had to be done in a way that could work within the kind of the higher ed paradigm. That's great. So right now at the uh, University of Michigan, talk to us about everything that is currently under your umbrella. So I'm here. I'm the executive vice president and chief financial officer, and I have all the finance functions that you would expect. I have the controller and uh, the treasury function. I also oversee the endowment, which at a place like Michigan is rather large. Uh, It's one of the largest. I also have operations that reports to me. I have our OMSBUD team, uh, HR, and then I have the the CFO of the medical center is also a dual report because it's so large that that person is also part of our organization. So what are you most excited about 
this semester as you go, as we, I, we're post-pandemic now, so I know there's been a lot of changes. So what are some things that you are most excited about? Our sustainability uh, lead for operational sustainability. It's a new position that we've created. And, and I, I am, I, like, like many of us, I look at the world and I am super excited about the opportunity for Michigan to lead. Uh, in in higher ed and and what we can become a become a living laboratory and in in implementing carbon neutrality i was at a board retreat last week and we were doing an exercise and said what's your headline you'd like to see in the new york times 10 years from now so board members and other executive leaders and mine was that michigan achieved carbon positivity not neutrality but carbon positivity by 2034 and developed a new alternative fuel that left no carbon footprint. So I'm very excited about that work. We just signed an agreement with a major airline. We're the first university to cover the incremental cost of biofuel for all of the miles that our people fly. Isn't that amazing? Students, faculty, staff for the next year. And then we did that because we're able to do it. In a position to do it, and because I think it's important to lead. And so, when you ask what I'm excited about, you can hear that it's it's right there. Everything we're doing right now, like many universities, is focusing on how we can solve our problems on our campus and help the world solve their problems. And it's challenging for CBOs because the reality of the cost hits very quickly. How are we going to pay for this? So that's what I'm very excited about. The other thing I'm excited about this semester, quite frankly, my daughter is going to be graduating from Michigan Medical School. Oh, congratulations. So it's very personal to me yeah. right now, right? Oh. So that's another. Well, that's huge. Yeah, that's great. We have a lot to be excited about. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, what is something you're doing now that you never imagined you'd be doing as a CBO? That's a really interesting question. So one of the things we're doing right now, uh, I don't know if everybody knows, but Michigan has two campuses, a North Campus and a Central Campus. Okay. And we're spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to connect those campuses. I guarantee that's not something I never thought would be something I would be I would be focusing on. And how are you doing that? How What are some things that you're thinking of doing to connect this, the two campuses? Again, back to my approach at the beginning, I think the first thing one should do is talk to every expert you can. And and in today's world, you don't have to travel to do that, right? You can meet on Zoom, you can investigate on the and the the world, the internet. But I also think it's been really important to look at other what other places have done outside of higher ed. And so it's been a really interesting journey. So it starts with the analytic work we all do, which is well, today we have buses. There's some diesel, some hybrid. We're some electric, but there's a capacity to how many students they can carry. So you start with this study as an example. Well, how many students and others do we carry? Uh, we're building a new hospital and right, a billion dollar tower. So you're going to add more employees and patients and where do they park and how do they move? So you start with this dynamic of growth management and then layer onto that the question of well, what, what different technologies are there. And that's why I said, when you said something exciting, I'm not at transportation expert. I mean, I know about airports, but I, so I've been learning a lot about every mode of transportation, gondolas, buses, dedicated bus lanes, elevated rail, uh, new technologies. And 
And so that's been the journey right now to start with the data and then go to what solutions are possible. Uh, so that's been huge. The other thing is, believe it or not, even a place like Michigan, there are always needs we have to think about our student experience. And it seems kind of hard to fathom, but we haven't actually built a freshman dorm, a dedicated freshman dorm at U of M since 1969. So we're in the process of getting board approval next month for our first dorm that'll break ground this summer. And so those are kind of linked, right? So where the students live, where they study, how they move around, it's it's a big jigsaw puzzle that the CBO and this amazing team I have have to figure out how to put together working with our academic colleagues and others. That's great. All right, let's go, let's transition a little bit and let's talk again about mentorship. You talked about Mr. Peter Earl being an early mentor of yours. Talk to us a little bit about some of the qualities that you feel Peter had and and how he helped you and some of the things that you're doing now to help those who are coming up under you. Peter took a chance on a young person untested, right? An undergraduate, he had all these grad students and he he heard about my passion and he said, I'll support you. Why don't you go out and see what you can do? And he put my name in the little tiny text at the bottom as a researcher. And But he took the time. He took the time to hear about me and my dreams at that young age and and then helped give me aspirational support and kind of guideposts, right? So somebody I could talk to, somebody I could reflect on. And I have to say that that has carried through my whole career, whether it's university presidents or uh, senior executives that that are mentors or people that I've met on the way that that I have been able to draw on for strength and and inspiration. And I think so. I try to impart that in how I develop my teams. How can I mentor? people as well. And and the qualities I, I hope I live by are those that I was able to benefit from on my journey. So what advice do you have for current CBOs right now, or maybe the people who are thinking of becoming a CBO? So the first, <laughs> by the way, if you did graduate work, keep a copy of your thesis on your table when you're meeting with academics so that they know part of the academy that's kind of humor but it be in be ingrained within the culture of the academy as number one the second is i have a philosophy to have a big idea every day it seems kind of nuts but i wake up and i write something down that means i have 365 well you know they're around ideas every year and i think in the best year ever we've maybe done four or five of them so don't be afraid to think big even if you don't do all of them, it's a, it's a mindset. The third is I think higher ed is in drastic need and always will of great CBOs, innovators and thinkers who can help fulfill mission. And so I think as, as, as I were be, if I'm being asked to advise or offer what people ought to look for, it's okay to innovate. It's okay to take risk and it's okay to push the edge of the envelope, but do it within a, a tolerance of what your organization can handle. So Michigan, Ohio State, Georgetown, my goodness, Georgetown is as old as the Republic, right? It's been around since 1789. And so you have to be able to bend the institution without breaking it. And I think that's really important. Helping 
bring about change in a way that is collaborative, that helps push the edges of the envelope. So back to the transport between the two, I got my audacious big ideas and now we're working on it, which is, can we create a transport system that is carbon neutral and does not rely on fossil fuel at all? Great example. All right. Well, I want to end with talking about your future and your legacy. So what does your future look like, um, Jeff, in higher ed? And what is your legacy? One of the first to me around legacy, I'll get to future in a minute, is as we've talked about, I've been at three places. And I think, I hope your listeners, this will resonate. At both places I left, a member of my team was elevated into the position I left. There was no search. So I'm a big believer in a legacy of succession planning and developing great teams of leaders so it can be seamless. And you all know this is kind of an anathema in higher ed. There's a weird belief that, well, we always have to do a search. We always have to bring someone new. Um, I had the benefit in my journey to attend a very small workshop, four of us, with two leaders that most people will know. One was Mike Krzyzewski. And so he was talking about how does how does he win the Olympics and with these teams of superstars and how do you manage superstars? Really important. But the other one that was even more profound was General Colin Powell. And he was talking about the fact that in his entire career, he could never use a headhunter. That in the armed forces, you always had to promote from within. And you can tell I was listening and it resonated with me. And so I hope one of my legacies is I've shown that we can create pathways as CBOs for our leaders to seamlessly step in and then the institution and the individuals benefit, not only the young people coming up in the ranks, um, but also those who can see this in action at every level so we can aspire to excellence. And so, so to me, that's really important. As I think about legacy in higher ed, I have tried as best I know how um, to not only develop these teams, but then look at how we can support mission in novel ways. And sometimes it's a little frightening, but I've looked at across the two institutions, how we've been able to enter into some really exciting public-private partnerships, bringing new expertise in to solve problems, whether it's around energy or at Ohio State, it was around parking, and allow us to build up assets in the endowment that have been able to use to fund scholarship research. So new students and support for research. And I hope that's my legacy, that that thinking outside the box has built an enduring process to invest in our future. As to my future, by by the way, I'm turning 60 tomorrow. Oh, wow. um, 60 feels quite young. Happy birthday. Well, (laughs) you look young. Thank you. Um, And I really, truly believe this is where I'm meant to be. Uh, I hope that this is where I can finish my career in higher ed. I I, um, I feel very content where I am. And we have a new president who's just exciting uh, and, and fun to work with and an amazing team. So uh, I am hoping to to transfer my teaching. Uh, I'm still teaching at Ohio State, and I'm hoping to be able to move that to Michigan next year. So I'm working on that. Um, but but really, I I feel like at this point, we have uh, accomplished so much of what we had, had hoped to in higher ed. And then at this point, we can help work with this next generation of young leaders. And it's an amazing platform, honestly, at University of Michigan to, to be able to think about how we can continue this work as we 
but I don't know how long, but uh, as long as it's mutually beneficial, I'd love to stay here. That's great. That is great. How is that being at two rival, I mean, huge rival schools? Like you're teaching still at Ohio State. So my son, um, who's currently at law school out in Philadelphia, is an Ohio State graduate. Okay. My daughter, um, who went to school out east, is now at Michigan Medical School. My whole family went to U of M. Mom, dad, aunts, uncles, brother. My wife didn't go to Ohio State, but her father did, her grandfather did. And so, you know, what you learn on the journey is that it's a rich, a rich tapestry and you can embrace both, just not on game day. That's right. <laughs> I love on it. Game day, we all take sides. That's great. Great. That's great advice. Good. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for your time. If you Do you have any final thoughts? No, well, I do, Mike. Of course I do. I mean, my final thought is that I hope that that everyone can have as enriched opportunity as I have had. And and I often do have people say, well, yeah, those are at the big schools. They're the ones with lots of money. But what I would say is what I have learned working with lots of CBOs at big and small institutions, that a lot of the principles apply wherever you are in terms of intellectual curiosity, in terms of resource allocation. So I hope people don't just dismiss it as, oh, that's just these big schools that actually I think what we have seen is that there are things that can be beneficial across the spectrum in higher ed. Great note to end on. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of CBO Speaks brought to you by the National Association of College and University Business Officers. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of research and tools at nakubo.org. Make sure you subscribe to CBO Speaks on Apple Podcasts so that you can get the latest episodes instantly. And on behalf of Jeffrey Chattis from the University of Michigan, I want to thank you for joining us on CBO Speaks. I'm Donna Sheely. Be well. Be well.